Welcome to ChemTalk. Thank you for tuning in. This week, we interviewed Professor Timothy Dorr, a medicinal chemist and associate professor of chemistry at NYU Abu Dhabi. We hope you enjoy. Hi, Professor Dorr. It's really great to meet you. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Nafisa. I'm a sophomore in high school from Brooklyn, New York, and I am an intern at ChemTalk. Hey, Professor Dora. My name is Shreya. I'm a freshman in high school in Toronto, Canada, and I'm also an intern at ChemTalk. Hi, pleasure to meet you, Professor Dora. I'm Melissa. Um, I'm also an intern at ChemTalk. I'm currently a junior at Boston University. I'm super excited to get to know you today. Thank you for meeting with us. Thank you for the invitation. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you got your Bachelor of Science in Chemistry from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and your PhD in Chemistry from Stanford University. And currently you're an Associate Professor of Chemistry at NYU Abu Dhabi. That's correct. So would you say that there is any personal reason that you chose to work at NYU's Abu Dhabi location rather than the campus in New York City after studying in the US? Um, well, I didn't really have the option to go to New York. I was hired and recruited by NYU Abu Dhabi. I was at the University of Georgia for 12 years uh, as an associate professor there. And NYU Abu Dhabi came along and had this really fantastic offer. And my wife and I had been on, I'd been on a sort of a summer tour and visiting professor at Kyoto University. And we were kind of looking to have another international experience. Um, and then NYU Abu Dhabi came, came, I became aware of it and it seemed really interesting. And so we interviewed, we talked and turned out that it seemed like a really great fit. And so off I went, um, it was, and it's, it's been a pretty interesting, really steep learning experience and general interesting experience to live in the Middle East, um, for the last nine years. We also saw that you were a visiting associate professor at Kyoto University in Japan. How would you say your experience was there? And could you tell us about what it's different or similar to teaching in Japan rather than the US or Abu Dhabi? Well, the great thing about being a visiting professor at Kyoto University was that I had no formal responsibilities. And so I got to choose what I wanted to do. So I chose to be the student. I didn't do any teaching formally. Um, so I was invited and worked in the lab of, of Takashi Morii, um, whose lab is on the Uji campus. Uh, I think the, the tales of Genji and um, really great green tea is grown in, and produced in, in Uji. It's south of Kyoto. But my wife and I, it was before kids, and we lived in a, in a little apartment uh, in Kyoto, just north of Gion, and if you know the area, south of the Heian Shrine. Uh, right near, quite near the Kamo River and right across the bridge was like this fantastic old part of the city with shops and restaurants and fun things to do. So in the evenings, we would go out and explore the city. And on the weekends, we'd go explore the city and then elsewhere. Um, like we climbed Mount Fuji, we went to the Alps, we went to various different places around Kyoto, temples, shrines, um, you, you know, old villages. It was really fun. And in the lab, I worked with this really great graduate student in Takashi's lab, uh, Shun Nagano, and he taught me how to make aptamers. Aptamers was a, sort of the expertise of Takashi's lab. And there are these sensors you can make that will bind to 
really small molecules or parts of proteins or, or anything really, and you can evolve them to do this. And so he taught me how to evolve an RNA-based aptamer that could potentially be used as a sensor. The project wasn't that successful. It turned out not to work very well for what we wanted to do, but it was a great experience. I hung out in the lab a lot and we'd sit with the students and talk science or were the fun places to go. Takashi has a very international lab. So there are students from Belgium, from Jordan, from other parts of Japan um, where we weren't going to be able to visit. And so I got to hear about like what life's like on, on Hokkaido, for example, which is really far away from Kyoto. <laughs> yeah, that was, it was just absolutely amazing. You know, I'm just curious, did you pick up on any Japanese maybe at your time there? I did. I tried. I, I had some, some a computer software that I started to learn some things and the lab taught me some things, you know, Ohio Gazayamas, which is always the greeting. You always went and greeted the boss. And every time someone came in, you went around and greeted, you know, Ohio Gazayamas, which is good morning. And, uh, and some other, other, mostly food, shabu shabu and, and um, yakitori, you know, the things that were, were, you know, my wife and I are, are, we love food and, and, and dining and, we learned a lot about Japanese cooking and, and Japanese cuisine. It's, there's, it's way more than just sushi. And it's, <laughs> it's just amazing. Uh, to right. be able to do that. So yeah, I did. Um, but not nearly as much as I should have or would have liked. But because being an international lab, I mean, people mostly spoke English, even right. the Japanese to each other. Because it's science and you want to be understood by the most people around the world. English is the way is the language that scientists use. That sounds like a really fun experience. I know I'd definitely love to visit Japan one day as well. I recommend it. I want to go back. <laughs> so were you always interested in the chemical field or was there something, you know, sometimes there's a story or an idea or a vision that sparks your interest? It's, it's a story, um, but chemistry runs through it continuously. So I must have been in fifth or sixth grade and I was in a... My school, there's a program where they take kids out and we could do special projects. And there was a teacher. And one of the things we, we, were, we did was we were studying nuclear power. Um, and I grew up in Connecticut and my home was serviced by mostly nuclear power. There were two nuclear reactors, Millstone, which was in Waterford, Connecticut, and then and Haddam Neck, which is now, it's gone now. It's been completely de decommissioned, torn down completely. Um, but there was the Connecticut Yankee, which was, I think, the first nuclear power plant built in Connecticut in the late 60s and early 70s. I neighbor down the street worked there and we'd arranged for this program and we were supposed to debate the merits of nuclear power. Uh, the idea was you were in the village and they were going to build a nuclear power plant and were you for it or against it? How are you going to vote? And I was assigned to defend, you know, to to be a proponent of nuclear power. So I learned a lot about it and, you know, the waste problem and stuff. And this sparked my interest in, I wanted to study nuclear chemistry. Um, and that's what I wanted to do. And I learned, learn all about this stuff and work on, you know, um, how to make safe nuclear power. And so I went to college to be a chemistry major. And then in my sophomore year, I took organic chemistry. And it was just absolutely eye-opening to understand how one could make pretty much anything you wanted by putting together these small molecule molecular pieces, carbons and, and everything like that. And, and the idea that you could design molecules to have function and then you could make them whatever you wanted. This was so powerful. 
uh, I never looked back. So nuclear chemistry went by the wayside and it was all about organic chemistry and learning how to make stuff. That seems really cool. So we also saw that you have an interest in chemical biology and medicinal chemistry. Would you say that there was anything that sparked your interest specifically in the biological field? Well, in graduate school, I used to hang out with other graduate students who were in the neuroscience program, and they were a really fun group. Um, not that the chemistry students weren't fun too. We had good times in chemistry as well. You know, so I learned about a lot of their research and the things they were doing. And it was, it was fascinating, this idea of studying the brain. And, and I started thinking about ways in which you could use chemistry to study brain function. And I had a, a mentor. He was actually the chair of my PhD defense committee, uh, Donald Kennedy. He was the former president of the university. And he's a former, was a, was a neuroscientist as well. And I used to love some of his jokes and comments about neuroscience. And one of them was, I, I just really loved, because he, he's really old school. He worked on lobsters. But he said, why did, did, did electrophysiologists and, and neuroscientists start working on the squid giant axon? Well, the electrodes that they used were so large that the axon had to be big enough whereby you could throw a dart across the room and hit it. And that's how you were able to achieve patch clamping was because the axon was so large. Today, the, the, the microbes are teeny tiny and you can, you know, an expert extraphysiologist can patch clamp on a, on a single human neuron really easily or a rat mouse mostly. And so he sort of inspired me um, to work in neurosciences. He was influential in me choosing a career in academia as well. He pulled me aside one day because I was talking about different stuff and doing industry work and because um, I'd gone to graduate school to work in drug discovery and that was where I was headed. Um, and he pulled me aside and said, no, you know, I think you should consider a career at a research university. I think you have the right stuff. I think you can do this um, and you should, and, it, and you should do this first because those other things you can do if it doesn't work out or it turns out you don't like being a professor at a research university. And so that's the path I chose. Um, and so as a graduate, after I got my PhD, I went to a neuroscience lab. I worked for Roger Chen um, at, the, at UC San Diego. And, you know, and then in the laboratory there, I worked very closely with electrophysiologists, Varda Levram, and a bunch of other really talented biologists. And so I started learning a lot about biology. And there were other chemists in the lab who had different background from my own, and they sort of helped me to learn how to work with biologists and, and design tools and, and really be able to think about how you can make an impact using organic chemistry to study, study the brain and other physiology, not just the brain. And I do have to ask, um, since now you have both experience in conducting research and teaching, would you say that you prefer one over the other? I do, actually. I mean, I like teaching. I do. I really, I like teaching. But the thing that gets me up in the morning is the research. And I think that's the difference between someone who'd be interested in academia but might want to go to a liberal arts college. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's an expectation of some research. But really, you know, they want you to be inspiring and fantastic and think a lot about teaching all the time. So it's more like 80-20 teaching versus research. At a research university, it's kind of the opposite. They want you to be a creator of new knowledge. And the research university, it's the creator of new knowledge in the lab. Um, and then you're trying to transport that to the classroom and impart that on the students as well. So they do go together. 
Um, but the thing that gets me up in the morning is the, you know, my research team and, and the work that we're doing. Speaking to your research, we saw that you and your research team were actually involved in building broad spectrum antivirals that would target the coronavirus in early 2020. Could you elaborate on this? Uh, sure. It's a, it's a new project kind of driven by the pandemic. I'm sure that if you went and interviewed a whole bunch of other chemists, medicinal chemists, that they probably said, will tell you that they have a COVID-19 project as well. Uh, so because of restrictions on number of people who could be in lab and social distancing that was required, we started working more on computational um, projects, at least quite a few of the people in the laboratory to kind of reduce population levels um, in the lab. And so we started looking at a couple of targets in SARS-CoV-2 and did some work and understood that these targets that we were thinking about, we also looked at whether they impacted other viruses, for example, some that cause flu-like enteroviruses or Coxsackie viruses, and some, and even the coronaviruses that, that are causing uh, the, the common cold in some cases. And so we picked a few targets and we started doing, there was crystal structure data and some, some other biochemistry on them. And we started working on screening some, virtually screening some molecules to, uh, to, to see if we could find some, some inhibitors that might be amenable to, to, to becoming drugs. And it turns out we have some hits um, that work in, in a biochemical assay. And we also know that they have some uh, amount of inhibitory properties for viral replication in a cell-based assay. Um, we recruited one of my colleagues at the medical school in New York, uh, Kenny Stapleton, and he um, has been helping us uh, with some of the cell-based assays. We do the biochemistry in the lab. So, so yeah, stay tuned. We'll see. Now looking at building out SAR around the scaffold we've identified, and we'll, we've got another target that we've got uh, some virtual screening that's finishing up within the next month or so, and we'll start selecting molecules to, um, to synthesize and, and test. So from there, it's about, will be about expanding and seeing how these, these, the best compounds work against other viruses. So stay tuned. It's been fun so far. That sounds very interesting. It's also very, it really opens my eyes because you started out researching the coronavirus and now you're looking to expand your research into other viruses and they could this could really make an impact on people globally. So would you say that this work is rewarding? I mean, I would, I definitely think it is rewarding, but what do you think is the most valuable experience? Well, it's really fun to, to learn something, something new. And it was for us, we had just, a few people in the laboratory had, had, we'd been working on some computational work and we, for another project, we've been doing quite a lot of modeling and trying to understand how we might build some tools to study a particular enzyme that's involved in, in cancer. And so it was, it was fun to kind of port that over and also open up and enable uh, other people in the laboratory to build the skills. We had just finished up, the whole lab had taken a, a course in a workshop, and then it turns out we ended up organizing another workshop uh, virtually, it turned out to be, um, at NYU Abu Dhabi on, on doing molecular modeling for drug discovery. And so it's been fun to kind of really ramp up this, this 
sort of technology and technique in my laboratory. So it's one of the one of the tools we use fairly regularly now to help us generate hypotheses and think about structure and small molecule uh, protein interactions. So you mentioned that you were looking into some different enzymes that are relate, uh, related to you know oncology and cancer and parasitic diseases and whatnot. So is this the RAS enzyme, I believe, that you're looking into? RCE1, RAS converting enzyme one? Yes. So that was the original impetus for, for starting to work on computational chemistry. And it was, it, it came from, we started working on it long before there was even a crystal structure of the protein. And then a crystal structure appeared and I thought, well, we need to figure out, see if we can use this information to try to build some better inhibitors. It turns out that that's not really that easy because the crystal structure is from a, an archaea called methanococcus. It's not got a lot of similarity to the human version of the enzyme. And so our modeling has not really, we haven't built a model that's actually predictive of small molecule inhibitors of the enzyme. We found other ways, non-computational ways to find uh, and using basically uh, peptidomimetics. So the substrate of the enzyme, we imitate it, but we make it so that it can't be cleaved by the protease. And it, we've had much more success. We've also been doing a lot of molecular biology around it, trying to understand its role uh, as a regulator of a pretty pernicious oncogene called RAS. And so we're making a great deal of headway in that area. There's another oncology target. We've been working with a, uh, a medicinal chemist in, um, in New Jersey. And so those, we've been doing a lot of computational work and, and docking. He's a medicinal chemist, so he has a lot of compounds. He's been trying to understand where to go with SAR. And so we've been working with him on trying to generate ideas uh, for how to build more potent and also look at how to build compounds that will be amenable to pharmacokinetic, the pharmacokinetic properties one needs to make a drug. And then same thing, he also, the same, same collaborator, uh, Dave Rotella at Montclair State, he, uh, we've been working with him on a malaria project, so a target for malaria. And again, we've been doing modeling to help guide their, their SAR studies um, for, for finding potent compounds um, that would potentially become anti-malarials. That sounds like very cool work that you guys are doing and definitely something that will make an impact on people on a global scale. One can hope, but I assure you, drug discovery is really hard and the chances of success are, are very small. There's lots of really great early stage kind of discovery work where you identify an inhibitor, but that is so far away from a drug to the market. And there's a lot of things that have to happen in between that uh, are all designed essentially to fail. And so, yeah, it's, it's, one can hope and one always goes, you know, with the great optimism that you can do it and this is going to be the one, but, you know, you also have to understand that a lot of things in science fail. Yeah. You've created, you know, many technologies with your team that not only is going to move this research forward, but really it's helping everyone evolve their knowledge of the kind of research areas you're focusing on. So I guess regardless, and I'm crossing my fingers that it is successful, but regardless of its success, I guess the technology that you've created, it, it really does help on a more global scale, right, to further other research areas. So is that something that you find is kind of fulfilling as well? 
It is very much so. I love working with my my neuroscience and biology collaborators. You know, the we built one of the first things I did when I was an assistant professor. I I built some photochemical technology to activate um, small molecules, neurotransmitters, neuromodulators, drugs, antisensory agents. You name it. Odorants is one of the latest ones to to be able to activate them in such a way so that you could study the the dynamics or the the spatial heterogeneity of of their of their behavior and how they influence the biological system. For example, one of the big things we're working on now is is studying uh, dopamine signaling in the brain. I've been working with two people, John Williams and um, Kim Neve who are at uh, the Oregon Health Science University in, in Portland, Oregon. And they're both interested in, in the dopamine receptor. And we've built some tools to help them explore how dopamine acts on the, the receptor, what happens afterward, the interplay between the dopamine receptor and other G protein coupled receptors that are in, the, in that region of the brain and on, on that neuron and other neurons. It's really been fascinating to, to, to be able to work with these, these people and, and help them um, answer questions that would not be possible unless we had built the technology to be able to do so. And so that's, that's, it's just one, like you think about the things that get you up in the morning. This is, this is one of them, you know, it's like, wow, I built something and now someone's using that to answer some fundamental questions in biology. So we, we know something more what, of, than what we did yesterday. And that's, that's the, that's the greatest part I think about being a scientist. Um, so you spoke a briefly about the photoactivatable odorants. How would you say that you are using this to further chemosensory research? Well, we, we worked with a group in Florida at the University of Florida who actually, they actually approached us and had said, hey, you know, here's the problem with what we're trying to do. We're trying to understand, you know, from the sensory neurons uh, in the nose all the way back to the the um, olfactory lobe of the brain, we're trying to map those, those neurons and those connections. And what we really need is, is, a, is an odor, powerful odorant that can be released instantaneously. Because if the way you normally, you could just put the, the odorant near the tissue, but then diffusion has, has to happen and the, the gas has to get absorbed into the, the mucous membranes and then process. It takes a long time. And so we really wanted to have something where they could instantly turn on the signal at the sensory neuron, and then they could measure moving backward uh, all the way back to the olfactory bulb and map the neural connections. And so that's what they're doing. We, we built the tools and we published the first paper with them and they're currently working on, on using those tools to do this, this mapping of the, the olfactory system uh, on, a, on a mouse and rat model. That sounds very interesting. Do you have a particular interest in studying the brain over, you know, other parts of the human body, maybe? I do, I think. It's, I sort of, everything, we'll do some part and then we'll, we kind of always kind of aggregate back to the brain. Um, it's, you know, I, I guess it's, it's just such an interesting organ and, and one of the ones we understand probably the least of, of all the physiological systems that make us, us. And so, yeah, so, so I, it, it always comes back to, to the brain.
this may be controversial, but I also think the brain is like the, I guess the most vital organ. It's like if without understanding, understanding the brain, we can't really understand how the rest of our body really works. So I think what you're doing is really admirable in that sense. So we've discussed your research, we've discussed your path to success. Now we want to ask, is there any specific person in the science field who you looked up to as a student pursuing chemistry? There was. So in, in graduate school, hanging out with the neuroscientists, I became aware of the work of Roger Chen. And when it became time to look for a postdoc, uh, it happened to be that the American Chemical Society meeting was in San Francisco, and we all went up every day to see it. And Roger was giving a talk at uh, at one of the one of the sessions. And so after his talk, I marched right up to him, introduced myself, and and asked him. I said, you know, got some really interesting stuff. You know, do you think you know you could uh, use a synthetic organic chemist on your team? You know, I'm really interested in, in, in building tools for, for studying the, you know, studying the brain. And, you know, we talked a little while and so he said, well, okay, well, send me a letter. And so I did. And then next thing I know, he's calling me up and I'm flying down to San Diego for an interview. And, and so, yeah, so, so then he, he took me on in his lab, uh, which was fantastic. And it was all, this is all pre-Nobel. Okay. So before the Nobel and I got to work on, on photochemistry, using photochemistry to study uh, brain science. I work closely with an electrophysiologist, met a lot of other people, um, other model systems, and uh, it was fantastic. And I also started to learn how to do cell, cell and molecular biology while in the laboratory. I worked on a, a redox-sensitive GFP, which I think of as my little teeny, tiny, eensy-weensy contribution to Roger's Nobel Prize um, in 2008 for fluorescent proteins. There were certainly a lot of other people who made much larger contributions, but I, I worked on a GFP in Roger's lab. I, that was just, you know, fantastic. So right now, would you say you still look up to Roger or is there anyone else you, you look up to currently as you do your research? I do. Sadly, Roger passed away um, uh, quite a few years ago. And there, I guess, is there any one person contemporary that I look up to now? I would say there are probably a lot of them, a lot of people in a variety of different ways that whom I look up to. And, you know, I, I guess opening up the, the journal of literature is, you know, there's always someone who's inspiring us to think differently about something. And so I, it'd be really, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm afraid if I name names, I would leave someone out. <laughs> that would be unfortunate. Um, so I would say that I, I draw inspiration and, and, and uh, look to many, many role models in chemistry and biology um, and science and engineering in general. So you said that you actually prefer doing your research over teaching, but what would you say is the most valuable part about being an associate professor of chemistry? My research team, they are amazing. Absolutely amazing. They're they are creative, they're hardworking, they're, and they're always pushing the edge of the envelope. They come to lab meeting, they've got ideas and they're just always on top of things. And so, so if, there's, if, if there's anything that I think that I love the most about my work and, and working in, uh, at the University of Georgia too, and now in NYU Abu Dhabi, 
it was, it's my team. I think they're, I think they're fantastic. And I love working with them. Of course, I feel like being determined and motivated is definitely a key aspect if you want to be successful in the science field, just because, as we said earlier, you have to be ready for failures and rearranging all of your work. So I guess I would want to ask you if you have any advice for students who want to pursue um, similar careers in chemistry or science in general, just to be ready for their future. Yeah, you nailed it. Determination. You know, doing what I do is, it's a really, really hard road. It is extremely competitive to get your first academic job at a research universe. And so you got to have that determination. You got to have, you know, the ability to, to cope with, oh, well, it didn't work out that way. So I'll try a different way. That's, that's really key. So I guess I, you just, if it's something you really, really want, you just got to keep going after it and, and I, you know, you'll get there, but understand too, that it's not easy doing what I do. Right. Essentially, I think for students like us, we have to remember that failure is a part of success, like you said, and without failure, we really can't have the success that we do in the world. So very, very inspirational. So this is just a fun question that we like to ask our interviewees. What is your favorite element and why? Carbon, of course. <laughs> it bonds to everything. <laughs> you put it together with all the other elements and the, it, the possibilities are endless. Right. So over the course of your professional career, do you think there has been a change in how the general public or average student perceives chemistry? I, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't, this is, this, I have to think about that question. You know, a lot of people think of chemistry and think of chemicals and harmful and everything else. They don't think of, oh yeah, the food that I eat is a chemical. The, the, the ocean I swim in is a, is a really crazy group of chemicals. And the drugs I take are all, those are all, they're all chemicals. And everything that, that goes on in my body is, is a, it's, we're just a whole, group of chemical reactions, if you want to really be reductionist about it. So I, you know, I think, I think a lot of, I think that the, the public perception or knowledge of chemistry, I think has increased over my lifetime. And I, but I, you know, I don't have any, I don't have any evidence. <laughs> no, I have only anecdotal stories of, of people who I know, and, you know, we're not chemists, but have learned over the time, maybe hanging out with me, that it's it's a really dynamic field and it's there's a lot of yeah. So so I, I think people's knowledge of chemistry is has increased um, over time. And even now I feel like there is this negative connotation surrounding chemistry and especially like organic chemistry. People would say it's hard, so I don't want to take it. I don't I don't understand it. So I don't want to risk my GPA by taking that course. And it's like, you really don't know unless you do take it. And so we, we think at ChemTalk, we think that um, it is part of our responsibility to improve this connotation and make chemistry more easy to understand and more fun to learn. Organic chemistry can be, can be really fun, but uh, don't take it from me. Try it for yourself. 
I think, yeah, I know it's, and that's a challenge in, in when I, when I teach um, is to, to inspire students to, to not think of it as this is, you know, the, the GPA busting course that's going to keep you out of medical school um, or keep you from becoming an engineer. This is not what it's about, but it's a really powerful way of thinking and problem solving. And I think that students, if you can get students to appreciate that, you know, this is a really way, really powerful way of solving problems. This could be useful down the line, even if I don't become a chemist, that the way a chemist and in general, a scientist thinks is a powerful way of solving problems. And I can use this in my everyday life in the future. Would you say organic chemistry has contributed to um, any particular research area that you conducted or? Organic chemistry is, well, the whole field of chemical biology, this idea of using chemical tools to, to probe biological systems. I mean, it's been huge in advancing our understanding of biology uh, in many, many ways. The, the pharmaceuticals that we, we use as medicines, um, this is all, these are all organic chemistry based. It started back in the 19th century when, um, when urea was the first organic molecule uh, ever synthesized. And so the contributions of organic chemistry to things like polymers, the materials we use, being able to, to make various different um, objects that are important from artificial heart valves to the gasket in your, in your car engine to the coatings on your furniture and wherever. This is all, all of these are, this is all organic chemistry. So uh, I think the, the contributions to, to life in general have been huge. It's overwhelming. Right. It's really amazing how everything like around us is chemistry and we just fail to realize it. And why, and that's why I think there is a connotation surrounding chemistry. So uh, seeing that there is a negative connotation of chemistry surrounding us, do you think that there's anything we can do perhaps to improve this connotation based on your experience? I think it's always accentuating the positive uh, aspects of chemistry and, and talking about all the, the things that chemistry brings. So I think that that message is, is, is really important um, and pointing out to people where, where, you know what, this is a result of chemistry. A lot of the things that we have today are the result of chemists and chemistry um, and our understanding of chemistry and how we can use chemistry to solve problems. Right. And that's one of our missions at ChemTalk. And since we are a brand new nonprofit whose mission is to make chemistry more fun, easier to learn and accessible to people around the world, would you say that you have any advice for us or any thoughts on our mission? I would say that, you know, it's a great mission. I think that, you know, you, you've got some great messaging things to put into that messaging as, as we've talked before about chemistry being a great way of, of solving problems and, and no understanding the scientific method and learning how chemists solve problems is, is really important. There are two other sort of things that people will tell me to inspire people to pursue careers in chemistry and in science. Uh, and, and what is my, my, my graduate advisor, Paul Wender, used to say, he's like, well, become a chemist and see the world and someone else's, on someone else's dime, essentially, right? Which is, you know, here's, here I am, I'm in Abu Dhabi and I, you know, I didn't pay to get here. I'm, someone's paying me to be here. Um, I went to Japan and, and 
and this was this was on someone else's time. I've gone to right of Europe, uh, um, to Hong Kong, lots of great places uh, to give seminars and to go to conferences. So it's a great way to see the world and meet lots of really interesting people. And the other is is you know it's about using what you've learned. And this was another thing that Paul Winder used to tell us is as well. You will use everything you learn eventually. So what an incentive to be a sponge for knowledge. That's that a is, very nice uh, way to put it. The, the, and I put the, I have not done anything with aptimers that I did when I was in, in Kyoto, but I learned a tremendous amount about people and working in the lab. And, you know, every time I see a paper involving aptimers, I think, hmm, maybe there's something there we should go, we should go look at. And, but it'll come back sometime. It's useful knowledge to have. And is there anything else that you want to ask us or tell our listeners? I think we've had a pretty broad ranging uh, discussion about my career and, and science and, and chemistry and, the, and, and how to make chemistry have a more positive image. I think chemistry, ha- it, it has a fairly positive image, um, speaking from the inside. And so, so yeah, but I, I think I would say, you know, keep up the good work. Uh, I think you've got a great mission and, you know, all of you have, have got the right attitude because it seems like you're all having fun and you have the determination and the strength um, to forge through this thing that we call science that seems to be so challenging to understand. And it's really, yeah. Thank you so much for the advice, for such motivational stories. Um, And thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to speak with you. I think we've all definitely learned a lot. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. To learn more about Professor Dorr and his research, you can check out the information in the show notes. Don't forget to check out ChemTalk on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok, or go to chemistrytalk.org for our new content. Thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in next week.